So, hi everybody and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Daryl Mead and Mary Sharp from the Reward Foundation in the UK. And I would be happy to uh, give the intro- leave the introduction and a little bit of um, what you guys specialize in to you. So let's let us begin. Okay, well, I'm Mary Sharp. I'm chair and one of the co-founders of the Reward Foundation. Our subline is Love, Sex and the Internet. So we teach people about the reward system of the brain, which is the driver for all, all behaviours really, but when it goes out of balance, then people can end up with problematic use of things like pornography or eating disorders or alcohol or other addictions. But basically, um, my background is that I studied psychology before I practiced, before I studied law and then I practiced law. And um, then uh, years later, I did some, when I was teaching at the University of Cambridge, I did some training in neuroscience, just some basic stuff. And I did some training around applied neuroscience for stress management. And then over time, I learned more about um, how that applies to things like, you know, problematic use of internet pornography. And I'm Daryl Mead. I'm currently the Chief Executive Officer of the Royd Foundation. My background has mainly been in culture, particularly uh, more recently libraries. I was the Deputy National Librarian for the National Library of Scotland. And I'm one of the people who helped set up the system in the UK that collects the internet for the future uh, in terms of archiving. So I've come primarily from a technical background, understanding the internet, uh, but also looking at its its social factors. My PhD was in the history of technology. Okay, excellent. So welcome to the show and I'm very happy to have you on. And I find that this topic is uh, or the topics that you've mentioned are extremely uh, relevant and what I'm personally interested in is how the internet and uh, things like social media access to online porn can really change or or shape the um, the experience of people and especially young people today and we've seen various trends that um, that are prevalent on thing on uh, things like social media, where we have things uh, like topics like polarization or echo chambers. But in terms of um, the reward centers and um, addiction and addictive potential, we also have uh, things like being addicted to social media and, and the um, yeah. the reward of the likes and um, things of that sort. So sure. I would just like to ask you what. What brought you to, um, what, what stimulated your interest in this topic of, uh, of uh, pornography use and especially exposure uh, for young, young people? Well, I was um, back practicing law. I'm by profession an attorney, mm-hmm. uh, a Scottish advocate or barrister. And I had been away for a number of years working in Brussels. And when I came back, I was absolutely shocked by the massive rise in 
sexual abuse, sexual assaults, and just the, the, the whole crime area around that. And nobody was talking about pornography. And by chance, I came across work by Gary Wilson in America. He had this amazing website called yourbrainonporn.com. And I got the chance to help organize a TEDx talk. It was the first ever TEDx talk in Glasgow in 2012. And I suggested him as a possible speaker for the event to the committee. And it was a you know racy subject talking about pornography. So they said, yeah, great, let's have him over. So Gary Wilson came over and talked about his website and how, you know, how it developed and how there were so many young guys desperately looking for help with um, problematic use of pornography. So Gary did a talk about that and about the little bit of research that was available at the time. Already in 2012, there, there, was, there were some research papers coming out about the internet in general, um, but he was looking specifically at um, pornography. So it was fascinating to hear that guys, once they understood how this was affecting this reward system of the brain, and when they experimented with quitting porn, so many of the mental health disorders, the physical, the, the sexual dysfunctions went away when they quit porn. So some had been taking all kinds of medication, had been going to therapists, had been trying all kinds of things and nothing had worked. But when they quit porn, I'm not saying this is the case for all of them, but huge numbers were increasingly saying that they got their sexual health back, um, their, their anxiety, depression and lots of other disorders seem to disappear just with that one single change of behaviour. So I thought that was fascinating and you know that people needed to know more about it. So in 2014 Daryl and I set up the Reward Foundation as an educational facility to you know make people more aware of it because I just I come from a family of teachers, so it's probably a bit of a teacher in me, but it just seemed, you know, this was a major change to our society. It was like a, a giant unregulated social experiment. So, you know, why not give people some information so they can make informed choices? So that's how we got involved. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very, uh, very poignant way of putting it in terms of the social experiment because this is something that I've noticed and I think about quite often, not just with this subject, but also with things like um, digital media in general and smartphones and like, you know, the exposure to blue light regularly. Mm -hmm. So not to derail yeah. this, but this is a thought that I've, I've had uh, for quite some time. And I would like to mention that um, I first came uh, in touch with these ideas, or I came in contact with these ideas through uh, Phil Zimbardo's book, uh, Man Disconnected. Oh, yeah. um, oh, yes. Yeah, which was co-authored by Nikita Colom, and she was actually uh, the person who put me in touch um, with uh, Gary Wilson, who then put me in touch with uh, you guys. So Great. can you mention some of the studies that are related to this phenomenon because you you just mentioned like sexual uh assaults sexual abuse as well as a an increased amount of mental health issues related to um this access to pornography so 
can you uh, can you mention how like your your let's say your project or uh, your network has contributed to some of the findings on men disconnected? If you or to be more specific, I can be more specific because I remember one of the most shocking findings um, that was cited there was this epidemic of erectile dysfunction among uh, yeah. relatively young people and I mean yeah. as young as teenagers where yeah. they were being uh, prescribed Viagra. So mm -hmm. could you speak more about this? Sure. Well, I think we'll both try and answer here. We see our role essentially as that of uh, science communication and social communication. There's a new phenomenon, there's a big emerging research base, and it's quite difficult for members of the public to readily join the pieces together. Certainly Philip Zimbardo and uh, Nikita Coulomb's um, work has been instrumental in helping develop a conversation in that area. We've been trying to make the research accessible to medical practitioners, to psychologists and other professionals who need to know about it, but also to the general the public. Uh, for the last three years, we've been running a, a full day professional training course accredited by the Royal College of General Practitioners in London on pornography and erectile dysfunction and sexual dysfunctions. And the reality is that if you're a training uh, family doctor in the United Kingdom, you get two days to learn about addictions in your four years of undergraduate medical training. And at the present time, no medical school actually talks about things like sexual dysfunctions as a potential behavioral addiction. So there was a, a gap in the market there. And we've worked with the Royal College of General Practitioners now, so for three years, to provide that training to any uh, physical or mental health professionals who, who need it, and they do that as continuing professional development. So that's certainly been a hugely important area. We're also teaching about in the schools because you want to nip this problem in the bud. So we've also developed a series of six, uh, seven in fact, lesson plans for schools for the whole of secondary school age appropriate for the different stages to make kids aware that while porn's fun and exciting, it also has a dark side potentially because it hooks into this part of the brain that gives us pleasure and gives us a great sense of anticipation of pleasure that it is so easy to become hooked on it because of its ready availability. Its access, affordability and anonymity allows them to indulge as much as they want really in material that completely overstimulates the brain. This is why we go on all the time about the brain. So, um, because we, we feel that that's the key new area that people, many psychologists, you know, are only beginning to learn a little bit about the brain and some are loath to go into a new field and think, oh, that's too medical. But in fact, to really understand the current phenomenon is terribly important to understand the, the new research and understand how it's impacting on the brain and therefore behaviour and how it's happening at a hidden level. Because if somebody eats too much food or drinks too much alcohol or drugs, you can see the physical effects, you feel ill, but your body, our bodies haven't developed yet a mechanism for saying too much internet because it's happening in the mind. And too much sex on the internet. 
And the core thing that makes anything to do with consuming pornography different to everything else on the net that can be addictive is that almost everybody uses it as a masturbation aid. So you're, you have the reinforcing power of orgasm to develop a potential behavioral problem, behavioral addiction, quite quickly. Um, and you can equally do similar things for gaming or for gambling. Gambling is particularly important because it has variable reward and the pornography supplying commercial companies have woken up to that and they also provide a high degree of variability in the pornography they present to you um, on, on their menus and through their pages. So they're, they're using the same concepts of reinforced behavior of learning to help develop um, a continuing behavior, whether it's to develop a gambling addiction which will empty your bank account, or ultimately to develop a, a sexual addiction, which may mean that you will then purchase um, either well, initially premium content, later on you will potentially purchase um, things like Viagra, which you mentioned, to uh, try and help or cure your erectile issues. It's, um, from the commercial point of view, a very powerful business model. Just to go back to Zimbardo for a moment, um, one of the things, if, I don't know if you've ever been involved in organising a TEDx event, but the TED people always want you to promote mainline, mainstream TED talks. So in fact, the one that was chosen for that particular event uh, as a lead up to Gary Wilson's The Great Porn Experiment was Philip Zimbardo's talk called the demise, demise of, of guys yes, yeah i've seen it you know that one no. yeah and he talks interestingly about arousal addiction well of course the problem is as this is a relatively new phenomenon since about 2008 when the high-speed internet became available people have been searching around for you know terminology to try and you know classify what what's actually happening and what's going on so the arousal this this over arousal by supernormal stimuli, whether it's gaming or gambling or much more readily internet pornography, is um, is the key to understanding where a lot of the issues the issues are. Right. That's yeah. So this is definitely uh, a topic that is relevant, and I wanted to ask if you know or if you're also advancing some kind of idea as to um, in terms of diagnostics because you mentioned you do these seminars for physicians and mental health practitioners but mm -hmm. from my knowledge of the dsm-5 for example this would be classified as just a behavioral addiction correct and do you know if there's any move to um, get it recognized uh, such as because and um yeah. Sorry, because there's there's been a pushback, I know, for things like uh, problematic internet use for about 20 years, and only now is it starting to become more accepted. The issue here, I think, is a question of who you go to for your diagnostic criteria. The DSM-5 did indeed do field trials and have a recommendation for hypersexual behavior disorder, mm -hmm. but it did not become um, accepted in the last time round, that was back in 2013. Yes. But in 2018, the World Health Organization um, put out the new edition of the International Classification of Diseases, ICD-11, and that includes 
two classifications that are suitable for diagnosing um, issues to do with internet pornography consumption. The main thing they have is compulsive sexual behaviour disorder, which is um, open to any form of sexual behaviour, be it with phones and pornography or with people. And that has diagnostic criteria that requires it to be diagnosed um, for uh, a period of at least six months and things like um, objections on moral grounds would not count, but you have to have um, functional issues, you have to have problems. Most recently there's been a paper published by a group of leading behavioural addiction specialists that suggested that um, pornography use uh, would fit in very well to disorders due to addictive behaviours under the 6C5Y category. And it will be interesting to see where the debate goes there. But the advantage of the um, disorders due to addictive behaviours is that it's only focused or can be only focused on problematic pornography use, whereas the uh, compulsive sexual behaviour disorder could be pornography, it could be people, it could be a combination of um, the two things together plus sex buying online, phone chat, all sorts of things. But anyway, there, there are real options now and the international classification of diseases will go for uh, a rollout around the world, we believe, in 2022. Interestingly, the compulsive sexual behaviour disorder category, the, the researchers are already looking into it, as well as you know, training being done for professionals. But they have found that 80% of people coming forward with compulsive sexual behaviour disorder actually have problematic porn use or a porn addiction, if you like. So it's not so much sex buying or whatever, it's actually excessive porn use is the root of their trouble. And I think that was behind the necessity, uh, you know, a lot of um, these psychiatrists and neuroscience researchers saying we really need something that's specific to pornography and hence looking at this problematic um, other, disor other specified disorders due to addictive behaviours, including um, problematic pornography use. So DSM-5 is a little bit out of date. Um, there was a lot of controversy at the time whether hypersexuality, which would probably have included problematic porn use or porn addiction, um, that was rejected but because there wasn't enough evidence. But year on year since then, there has just been such a huge amount of evidence in support of that. I mean, I could give you some, some figures if you're... Well, the compulsive sexual behaviour disorder... Um, was accepted by the World Health Organization because there were a series of successful field trials at scale to make that a viable proposition. So, I mean, currently there are 53 neuroscience studies that support the addiction model, 27 literature reviews, 55, more than 55 papers that indicate escalation. So like with drugs, you need more of the same. With porn, you need new and different. So this is how escalation works. And escalation is like tolerance. You build tolerance there if you need something more stimulating in order to get the high. That's one of the classic characteristics of an addiction. There are 12 papers that indicate withdrawal symptoms from pornography. So that's another withdrawal, another um, classic characteristic of addiction. 
and so forth. That there are really lots. That there, there are over seventy-five papers that talk about less sexual satisfaction from real partners. Over eighty-five deal with emotional and mental health. So as you can see, that the, there's robust and plentiful research that supports the fact that this is um, a serious issue and needs to be diagnosed appropriately. Yes, so you've mentioned a lot of data and with the ICD-11, I was not aware of that addition, but I will definitely look into that. Uh, now, from what you're describing in terms of the addiction model, it sounds like the pornography industry has had to maybe change their business model in the last few years because from what I know, I mean, before the model was being, you know, selling DVDs or selling, you know, magazines. And now from what you're describing, I'm, I'm assuming that they've adjusted to it. And so with this, um, you know, increased need for new uh, experiences on the screen, that's where the probably like things like the virtual reality porn come in or uh, things like, you know, what you mentioned, like the paid uh, premium um, content and things like this. So is this, are you aware of, uh, of uh, an active uh, model that's, that, that is actually taking place or is this just based on the uh, observation and, and scientific studies of the uh, addictive behavior of people? We are quite aware of the economic models of the pornography industry, which have evolved extensively. Um, if we go back 15 or 20 years, in order to buy pornography in most parts of the world, you would have to be in a city, you would have to go to a physical shop, uh, you have to be over 18 to get in the door, and you would then have to spend real money and effort to purchase things like magazines. Now, magazine production, to all intents and purposes, has now ended. Um, the world has moved entirely digital, but the scale has changed. If we go back 20 years ago, perhaps a few million people in the world were regularly able to access pornography at scale within their lives. Um, my best guess at the present time is roughly one billion of the seven billion people on Earth currently use pornography at least some of the time. The largest single provider, uh, Pornhub, owned by the Canadian-based company MindGeek, currently serve 115 million sessions per day, every day. That was 42 billion sessions during 2019. Uh, potentially, or about half of the staff employed by Pornhub are data specialists who have previously worked at places like Google or Bing, and whose only job is to manage the, uh, the whole process as a data mining operation. Most of the profit now comes from uh, selling um, data about the users. If you have a website that has 115 million users a day, you have a very, very valuable profit center. And that's the, the, the main way things make money. There is some selling, only about 1% of people who use pornography um, actually pay for the pornography. Um, so it's not a cash um, sale like it was previously, although some of those individuals can be um, used to um, produce a lot of um, income. We have corresponded with individuals 
who have been spending 20 or 30,000 euros a year buying specialist, um, almost custom-made pornography uh, that meets their particular unusual sexual interests. So you can make some money that way. But it, the distributors are the people who currently make the money. Uh, production houses make small amounts of money um, and they are in some cases able to um, keep going. The reality is that like Pornhub um, in 2019 gained about 168 years worth of continuous viewing of new material. Uh, the majority of that they didn't pay for. Um, it was it comes up in, in through various routes. But the reality is now there is an extraordinary amount of pornography available from the commercial suppliers. The commercial suppliers are small in number. They're all private companies. Um, so their um, balance sheets are not exposed to the public gaze. But the we, we know that um, it's a big industry from one point of view. Um, there was a very good study done by the Shift Project in uh, Paris last year, looking at the electricity use of uh, pornography. And pornography streaming now uses about 27% of all of the electricity consumed by the internet. Oh, wow. That means that, means that the, the carbon footprint of the streaming porn industry is about now the same size as, say, all of the domestic households in France, a country of 60 million people. Wow. Somebody's paying for a lot of electricity and still making a profit at the other end after all their costs. So if I understood correctly, you're, you're telling me that the majority of the profit from a company uh, like Pornhub comes from data mining and selling uh, people's information, kind of like um, the social media yeah. companies do? It's exactly, they're part of the same ecosystem. So the pornography companies, even though almost everybody browses without signing in, they know what your IP address is and using the information that they can share at the back end, about 30% of all people who are using um, pornography are identified on the individual named basis um, by the data mining process. Um, the rest of them, they know what you're interested in and they can guess your age and your gender other things but 30 percent of people's actual identities are identified and when you're having 115 million people go to a single company every day every day of the year that's a lot of data definitely so i would be curious as to what kind of uh you know what kind of intelligence or you know uh what are they what are they selling about the users because I mean, I, I can understand with something like um, Facebook or Google then trying to, you know, sell to companies that that specialize in personalized ads. But in terms of pornography use, I can imagine most people are, you know, keep it private. And uh, so what would they uh, what would the companies if you have any knowledge about this, what would they be trying to market then to the uh, porn viewer? Well, we only have a modest amount of information. There's very little good published material here. Mm. Um, but for instance, the sex toy industry is currently estimated to be about 18 billion US dollars per year. Okay. So even advertising sex toys is a not insignificant amount of money. Um, the production from China of plastic, whatever, um, 
going across the world. There's significant money to be made there. Sexual dysfunction pills? The whole concept of if you watch a lot of porn and men often end up with sexual problems, well, the internet for, for years now has been awash with um, both real and fake opportunities for them to sell you uh, various sorts of meds, um, Cialis, Viagra, whatever, um, and there's lots of other things. So uh, being able to find and target people with those ads who will buy it, the suggestion now is that, and from the, the peer-reviewed academic literature, is up to 30% of all men under 30 now have some sort of an erectile problem. That is a big market. Yeah, definitely. And that, that was one of the things I was uh, most shocked about with the, uh, with, the, with the book from Zimbardo. Now, I just want to go back to something that uh, you mentioned before, Mary, about um, the seminars or the, uh, you know, the, the, the lessons you, you guys do with, uh, with schools. And because uh, yeah. I, I want to mention in the previous interview, um, with a colleague of mine, we, we were talking about uh, the study, the EU Kids Online, uh, which looked at, uh, you know, digital media habits of yeah. children and their first exposure to online porn, which is uh, also quite early. So I think it was around age 10 or 11 on average. Yes. And so, yeah, could you, could you just, um, like, give me a little bit of, um, you know, an overview of how your uh, lesson plans would look like and, and age-specific examples? Right. Well, we have, obviously, you know, we focus actually on secondary schools at the moment. We've got some lessons in development for primary kids, but we basically deal with 11 to 18-year-olds. And, of course, that's just around puberty, early stage adolescence so they're rapidly changing their social lives are changing over the course of those six years so um, what we actually deliver has got to be age appropriate um, if you give them something that's too young the older ones will laugh at it if you give them something that's too sophisticated the kids won't understand because it's not within their experience but we've got a, a lesson we've got three lessons on sexting an introduction to sexting so they know what sexting is we make it clear um, the, the different types of sexting. Um, we have sexting in the adolescent brain that explains why adolescents are so interested in sexting because that you know nature's number one priority is sexual reproduction. So they're keen to learn anything they can about sex. That's natural. And of course, the first place they go to is the internet. But they're not getting taught how to be in a relationship they're watching hardcore pornography, which is stuff for adults, it's not for kids. So we, we, we deal with that, we teach them. Um, so there's introduction to sexting, se sexting in the adolescent brain. And the well, third sorry one is- Sorry to interrupt you, Mary, but just for listeners who may not know what sexting is, are you talking about sending nude pictures or what exactly does it mean? Yes, it's, it's using the, a smartphone usually, because all the kids have smartphones. Sometimes they've got two smartphones. It's sending text messages or images or videos of a sexual nature. Mm. And it's, it's, it's useful ones. So they might be taking pictures of themselves and sending them on to somebody they fancy that they're trying to attract attention of. Or more and more what's happening is coercive sexting, 
where mainly young guys are asking girls for nude pictures or topless images and putting all kinds of pressure on them to to send them calling them frigid or you know uh, you know all oh, your pals are doing it why are you not doing it um, if they're going out with somebody if they've been on a date they'll say I'll dump you if you don't send me a picture so there's all that um, but a lot of it is porn induced the kids are getting a lot of the ideas from pornography so there's the three lessons there's for sexing there's um, introduction to sexting sexting in the adolescent brain and then sexting the law and you because kids don't realize that sexting is illegal if you're under 18 years of age in most mm -hmm. countries and if the police are legally obliged to not notify in the police criminal history system any incidents around sexting so a 13 year old boy who thinks it's a good laugh to pester girls for photographs nude photographs if they get the photographs as they quite often do because they wear the girls down and then send it to their pals if that's reported to the police that goes on that boy's record and so when he tries to apply for a job later particularly if he's working with vulnerable people then the police are obliged to give that information to the the organization who deals with you know checks background checks and that information will come up so the chances are he won't get a job because he has a sexual offense mm -hmm. so kids have no idea that this jolly jeep this fun playing around with their phones and so forth can actually have serious implications for what they're you know for, for jobs even volunteering jobs a few years down the line the second set is on the we teach specifically about internet pornography so we have um internet pornography what's i'm trying to remember the names of them um we've got what, what's the, the different ones which see no, i've got all my sexting ones in front of me oh yes we've got pornography on trial so we give evidence for and against pornography the question is is pornography harmful so there's evidence for and against and the children have to look at the pieces of evidence and then reach a conclusion themselves based on you know the evidence and to see whether or not pornography is harmful so it's, it's education but they're learning by doing we have um pornography um and what's the second one sorry um no is it pornography we've got so i can't remember my own lessons that's ridiculous um the next one is um pornography sorry pornography and mental health so because of the huge rise in mental health problems and often things like kids there's one psychiatrist for instance in america in california who says that 80 percent of the children she sees do not have the mental health problems that they've been diagnosed with and medicated for that they don't have the adhd they don't have the depression they don't have um, the anxiety or bipolar they have what she calls screen syndrome electronic screen syndrome and when she takes kids off their screens for three to four weeks then so many of these symptoms disappear and many kids are being i mean thousands and thousands of kids are being medicated with ritalin for things like adhd when they don't necessarily have it now some will have it but unless you remove this surface possibility take away the, the the internet for a while 
to let their brains calm down, then you can't see if it's a genuine ADHD system um, after all. Now, even if somebody does have ADHD, then a lot of internet use is going to exacerbate the effect and the, the symptoms. So that's a nightmare for any family trying to deal with that. Yeah. So it's really important that, that um, kids themselves are aware that the lack of sleep, because they're sitting up till two and three in the morning watching the internet under the blankets, um, under the duvet, <laughs> you know, that they're not getting enough sleep. So their brains aren't functioning properly. They're getting tired and irritable. Um, that's going to lead to stress apart from anything because they, they can't learn at school. They're not passing exams. They're getting into trouble at home. They're feeling frustrated. And so they just go back to the feel-good internet. And it's just a vicious circle. So that was the, the, the next lesson. So it was internet pornography and mental health. And then we've got on one on love, pornography and relationships. And we look at body image things. We look at, um, you know, what a love relationship is. You know, what, what you should be looking for. Issues around trust. Um, you know, what is, you know, if, if somebody's asking you to engage in pornographic sexual acts, is that healthy? Is that a good idea? Is there genuine consent? Etc. So it, it's just sensitising kids to some real live issues and giving them the chance to talk about these issues in a healthy way because a lot of teachers feel extremely uncomfortable talking about um, pornography. We've also got a lesson on um, the great porn experiment. We use Gary Wilson's TEDx talk which is just such a brilliant talk and we update it with the latest research um, around that. So that's a very helpful lesson as well. So that's it, that's the seven lessons. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds excellent. I mean, I I, uh, I would have more questions related to how effective it is and how do you get how do you get kids engaged? And um, I mean, if you've done some studies following up, whether it's effective, because you know some skeptics could say, well, you know, we've had um, things like Dare in in the United States, which was an anti-drug program, and they got people like kids to do more drugs or it wasn't effective at best. Um, but just to follow up on something you said uh, regarding the psychiatrists in the United States that mentioned the screen time. So one thing that, that uh, I was thinking while you were saying that was that uh, very often kids, uh, you know, who are misdiagnosed with something like ADHD may, may be uh, anxious or may have other things related to family problems, uh, yeah. you know, and so what what I could what I'm guessing could be an issue as well is um, dysfunctional families, uh, problems within the household, and the you know the phone being a the smartphone being a kind of a pacifier, and then leading to you know kind of a self medication or self soothing behavior uh, among kids. So. That's just my own personal note. But about the efficacy, have you have you guys done some follow-up or uh, have you gotten some feedback? Uh, we're at the point now, we've just done three years development work. We have done a lot of work with schools and about 20 professionals um, across uh, the medical, uh, psychiatric, police um, and educational fields have, have put things together. 
No, we have not yet done that work. We're in the process now of starting to roll them out and we hope that, that we will be able to have proper studies looking at the effectiveness of the content now that it's available, but we are not really up to that point yet. But one key point we would make, and the reason we have focused on teaching about the brain, and there are plenty of other people talking about critiquing porn, porn literacy, all that kind of stuff, that's fine. We think, based on the impact of Gary Wilson's TEDx talk, thousands upon thousands of guys on the porn recovery websites have said it was understanding how porn, the supernormal stimulation was impacting on their brain, was the key to inspiring them to quit porn. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also the fear of erectile dysfunction because yeah. you, you can you can say that you know porn's terrible, it does terrible things to the performers, it's terrible the impact on girls and all this kind of stuff. Young guys who are getting really high on porn don't give a damn about that. But you tell them that it's going to affect their erectile performance. Boy, do they listen. So we think it's the only thing that really gets their attention. It seems to be, and that's, that's not just our opinion, this is what the guys themselves are saying. When they heard you know, the, the, the science from Gary Wilson, they thought, wow, you know, let's, let's see if that's what's causing my problems. And you know, we're not saying to anybody, don't watch porn, watch porn if you want to, but just be aware of the risks. And then if you're having problems, then take a few weeks off porn. I mean, all you're missing is a few films and, a, you know, some orgasms from that. You know, so it's not a big loss just to experiment with quitting and see if that helps get rid of those, those, those issues. So we know then from these thousands upon thousands, I mean, hundreds of thousands of, of reports, you know, people saying, when I learned about the brain, that helped me. So that's why we're hoping that our brain-focused lessons are going to be useful and key to making that change. Realistically, you need to come back and talk to us in a couple of years' time. We have produced at least one peer-reviewed research paper uh, each year for the last four years, and we have more in preparation. And we know that studying the impact potentially of the material we've produced is one of the important things that we must do and we will undertake that. But realistically, it'll be 2022 before anything um, appears in the peer-reviewed literature. Okay. I must say that, yeah. No, no, I'm sorry, quite, go ahead, Mary. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I was always fascinated by the mind. And when, from the age of about seven, I wanted to be a psychiatrist, and then I changed that, no, no, I'll do psychology. So I studied psychology for years, and I've kept up with the psychology, although I never became a professional psychologist, I keep up with it, with the changes. But for me, it's been in the past 10, 15 years, the neuroscience has been the key. And while it's quite hard to learn some of it, you know, the beauty of Gary Wilson's book is that he explains it. He's a, he's a former science teacher and he explains the science in a really straightforward way. And in our workshops with psychologists and other professionals with often no psychology background, obviously the psychotherapist psychologist will have a psychology background, but there are other professionals we're dealing with apart from apart from the doctors who don't have a psychology background and they find the book just so helpful to just get to grips with with you know how the reward system works because nobody teaches you this stuff and yet we should all be told how we should all be taught at school about it because it has an impact 
on everything we do, the, the food we eat, the, the drinks we take, or anything, anything we consume, you know, all is played out in the reward system. So learning how to drive our own brain is just, I think, essential for everybody. So we're just trying to contribute to that in our own small way. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that is a sensible approach in terms of bringing, you know, evidence-based uh, findings. And yes, and, and uh, also like mentioning, you know, these issues that can come up with performance. And even some of the, uh, some of the research has shown uh, some kind of uh, temporary, I hope, cognitive decline or issues with, with the brain. Is that correct? Oh, yes. I mean, th th there was a very important study done in 2014 at the Max Planck Institute that talked is about functional connectivity between the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that makes decisions and decisions about the future, creativity, feeling compassion for others, theory of mind. It's also about impulse control. And it's the part of the brain that helps control the impulsive emotional, the limbic system promptings. Now, during the period of adolescence, the connections between the two become stronger or, or should become stronger. But if you start down the addiction process, then there is a reduction in grey matter. There's a, a reduction in the um, power of the pathways between those two critical areas, which means it's much harder to put the brakes on impulsive behaviour. So that's why, um, you know, I, I think a lot of kids are failing to grow up. They're failing, as Zimbardo says, they're, they're, they're just not launching into adulthood. They're just constantly impulsive and anxious and, you know, not getting to where they need to get to. So th this um, work by Kun and Galinat in 2014, you know, explains how th there's a reduction in grey matter in this key part, this functional connectivity. If you look at our website, we've got a YouTube channel with a few um, videos on it. And we've got a very good one by Dr. Don Hilton, who explains porn's impact on the brain. And he talks about this um, research from 2014. Right. And I will be sharing your website uh, and resources in the show notes. But yeah, th these, are, these are all fascinating and pretty scary uh, findings because if we uh, stop and think about it, I mean, what we're talking about is kids being led into a road of addiction and possibly um, you know, some sort of brain damage. Uh, but it's not just, and, and I would like to mention, it's not just online porn. It's the fact that they are constantly connected with uh, social media and other, you know, devices. And social media, we know now that it has been designed to be as addictive as possible and to take up as much time as possible from people. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and you, you know, you think about it, well, in terms of adults, hopefully we should have a little bit more self-control, but with children, they're especially vulnerable in uh, yeah. adolescence as well. So yeah, this, this makes, it, uh, makes it even more relevant. And, and actually this brings me to a point um, about you know, where is the balance? Because this was one of the, on, on my previous interview, I had a, a bit of a disagreement um, with, my, with my colleague regarding 
you know, um, how do we how do we use these kind of uh, digital media devices and things like um, you know every all these kinds of uh, uh, applications and online porn for kids? Well, how do we uh, teach them how to use these devices responsibly? And can you kind of use it in moderation, if you will? Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to say first. You mentioned brain damage. The key thing to note is the concept of neuroplasticity. The brain is constantly changing. So that there's not really brain damage as such that's done. The brain can heal. That's the great good news about this understanding neuroplasticity. Most kids might get sexually conditioned to porn. Not so many go on then to sexual addiction. But it's... You know, it causes them enough problems, there's, there's no doubt about that, but it's not really damage, brain damage as such. That, that's, that's one thing. Um, another thing I wanted to mention was that if they're psychologists, it's important to know that people with autism, autism spectrum disorders are much more vulnerable to problematic use of the internet because they often have problems with socializing they don't pick up social cues and you know other people consider them a bit weird they often talk too much and so forth but they find the internet fascinating and there they find their tribe and they're much more likely to they're naturally curious about sex like any other adolescents but they're much more likely to get caught looking at age what seems age appropriate for them but is actually considered by the law to be illegal and there's a disproportionate number of people on the autistic spectrum being convicted of possession of indecent images of children and childhood sexual abuse material. I mean, there's about one to two percent of the population are on the spectrum, it's, it's thought, but around 30 percent of people with um, autism spectrum disorders and special learning needs are turning up, are, are, are in the, the figures for um, these sorts of um, crimes. So that's, that's just um, something I want to mention. But Daryl's going to talk about how we, we maybe a, a technical solution to, um, to what you've asked. It's important that we do have balance. Um, now, things like social media are not something that I have a, a good solution for. But we have examples for age verification now from other industries that work online. So if you wish to purchase alcohol, tobacco, um, firearms, guns, uh, or to go and gamble, the, um, there are viable, mature technologies that allow age verification to be put in place. And we are likely to be seeing around the world in the next little while um, the regimes Put in place by national governments to have uh, a set system for age verification for access to commercial pornography and that uh, technology is starting to be rolled out and I'm expecting to see it in several countries in the next year or so. Right and, and that's something so, sorry that's something I saw on your web page uh, related to something you're, you're trying to bring forward in the UK and I was just thinking about it, and I think that, yes, indeed, it could be quite effective. And also, it would reinstall, I mean, it would reinstate this kind of 
um, you know, this barrier that was previously there that even if the kids want to access somehow, they have to make much more effort to it. And it makes it, you know, it gives it again, like the edge that it may have had in the past. Although I, I don't think this is the main purpose of it, but that was just a side thought. Well, it means that it's going to be much harder for very young children, the ones who tend to have the biggest negative yeah. influence from the pornography to have access. Uh, realistically, governments are not expecting you to have much impact on 17-year-olds' ability to view an 18-year-old screen. Uh, but it will make a big difference if you're 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. Right. A lot of the campaigners against the age verification legislation say that all the kids will be using VPNs and all the kids are really, you know, whiz kids when it comes to IT. That is just simply not the case. You know, I think it's, it, others think that has been completely exaggerated. A lot of kids are obedient. They're told not to do something, they won't do it. Um, sure, there'll be plenty who will try, but particularly for the younger ones, if it's just too difficult, they're more likely to, to look elsewhere. But it's a very complex and challenging problem. I think it's particularly challenging for parents. And the thing is, if you tell kids not to look at porn, um, they'll, they'll twice as quickly run towards it. Forbidden fruit tastes sweetest. And, you know, kids, adolescents just love breaking rules and stretching boundaries. So that's why we've said, you know, educate them. Don't ban them. Don't say don't do it or, or shame them. Um, but just parents need to be aware. So we've developed a free parents guide to internet pornography, which is on our front page on the home page, and it's updated regularly. It's got lots of free resources to help parents understand what the issues are, and also to have you know um, information and tips and coaching on how to have those difficult conversations with their with their kids as they go through the different stages of adolescence in regard to porn, but. Every brain's different, every brain's unique. Some kids will be more sensitive to porn than others. Um, the, the, the higher sensation seekers are going to be earlier adopters of the, of the material and use it more habitually than others. It's, you know, it's, it's just that wide spectrum of people. So being aware, the more parents aware, the more therapists are aware and psychologists are aware, um, the more um, they can help people if they get into difficulty right so this makes sense and and just a question in terms of your reception um how how has the reception been in terms of government responses uh from various countries i'm assuming you're only active in the uk but um is there is there more of a movement re related to you know age verification and awareness of these topics in, in other countries or even in your own? Uh, yes, Simon, there is um, more awareness. Uh, we were recently part of a conference that uh, 29 countries were represented at on age verification. The UK has passed laws but has not yet enacted the actual process. Um, Hungary is at the point of um, delivering South Africa has passed laws and again is about to roll out. France has to uh, Poland. France, yes, France is, um, now has um, put things through the Senate. So there, and Poland is another uh, group. So they're quite varied countries. Uh, and Australia and New Zealand 
um, the Information Commissioners and uh, the National Centre in New Zealand are both looking at the potential for that. Ultimately, it's a political decision, uh, but there is a an overall movement towards um, an acceptance that perhaps we should be changing the Wild West approach that the pornography industry currently has and to move us back, as you, as you suggested earlier, to a world where the laws you have offline and the controls are the same as you have online or at least much more similar. But we're involved with the discussions in all these different countries to a greater or larger extent. I mean, just the other day I was involved in a Zoom conversation with a Canadian Member of Parliament and his staff looking at age verification was a, a small group of us advising on that. So we're feeding in information there to help them in their discussions. Excellent. And yeah, and I think it is a worthwhile, um, you know, project. And uh, yeah, it's raise awareness to, to this issue. And we, I mean, in this conversation, we've just covered, you know, some of the psychological and medical uh, adverse effects of uh, porn addiction. But we didn't even touch upon all the rest of the sociological issues related the legal issues, <laughs> and also the people who are involved with, you know, in the pornography industry. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, primarily of uh, women and or, or even you know males who are um, in that may be, uh, you know, in a difficult situation and uh, selling themselves. Or, you know, this this is yeah. we didn't even touch upon that. So. Yeah. Oh, it's a huge topic. It's, it, and it, it's, it touches every area of life. It affects getting into relationships, affects divorce rates, it affects you know, relationship breakdown, it affects learning at school, it affects the workplace, health, um, you know, legalities. It's just sexual harassment, huge rise in sexual harassment. And, you know, people believe that, that um, the attitudes, you know, the, the, problematic porn use or porn addiction, you know, is contributing to that, this huge rise in sexual harassment in the workplace. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I, I know that there were studies uh, done in the past with, uh, you know, exposure to porn before a date and sexual aggressivity. Um, but yeah, and then just to, just before we close, I know that there's also some pushback uh, to your, uh, you know, your work and, and some of the other projects related to this awareness. Uh, what would you say, um, do you see any positive effects of pornography on society and on people? Yes, I think we do, but it's, it's always on a risk managed basis. Um, the majority of people provided they're not consuming a lot of pornography, will not have much in the way, if any, um, negative effects in their life. But because you're looking at it from a risk point of view, the, uh, the more you consume, the more risk you're taking and potentially the larger and more complex the negative effects. But certainly it's uh, something that is important to think about. At the present time, there's not enough discussion of what the risks might be there's just it's free we'll use it and we simply want that conversation to be balanced there's no, not technically possible to ban porn at the present time we cannot stop people using it the reality is there's 4g rolls out around the world as soon as it does 
you have an instant new porn market. Right. And no, 5G, as, as Mary mentions. But as soon as you can stream video, the behaviour of a population, whether it's in Africa, in Asia, across Europe, changes almost instantly. As right. I mentioned, the brain, every brain is unique and it's understanding how easy it is. Nature's number one priority is sex. So anything that simulates sex, namely pornography and an industrial strength version of sex and industrial strength amounts of sex, you know, affect the brain incredibly, particularly children's brains. We are particularly concerned about children and the impact yeah. it's having on them. But, you know, over the years, you know, beyond that, I'll give you an example. One of the, um, at one of our workshops, there was a, um, a sexual health clinic nurse said that they had a patient who had had two penile implants. Nobody had bothered to ask him, had he, did he use porn or use porn mm. to accept? So that's very invasive surgery. And in fact, he was still having erectile problems. Now, I'm not saying that it was, you know, a porn addiction that was the root of his problem, but the question wasn't even asked. So um, some people are going to be more affected than others. And the fact that it, the problems incubate for such for years before they really start manifesting, you know, in erectile issues um, is, is a cause for concern. So, yeah, we, we say use it if you want, but be aware of the risks and just know that the brain's plastic and it can be very uncomfortable unhooking from something you find so pleasurable just like giving up smoking or drugs or whatever most people on the recovery website say that giving up porn has been the hardest thing to give up compared wow. to these others yeah and um one uh one other thing absolutely and i think that uh from from some of the critiques to um to porn addiction i i think that one of the things that people assume is that they, they, they are biased towards a certain age. So you might have adults who didn't grow up with the internet, didn't grow up with smartphones, saying, well, you know, it was, it's, it's, uh, it's just uh, not, not a big deal. And with kids, with Gen Z, you know, with the Generation Z uh, kids today, yeah. they're attached to their phones. They, they're not... Yeah. Uh, they're not developing the same way in terms yeah. of social interactions. And, you know, try to imagine, you know, the first exposure to sexuality being porn rather than actually, you know, developing a relationship and knowing intimacy. So, yeah, yeah I understand. But like, I think it is a big deal. Um, and I just the last question uh, before we close, are you familiar with these uh, alternative pornography project where we could call them, let's say, more ethical pornography, where there's more of an emphasis on feelings and, uh, I don't know, more intimacy. I, I don't know if you've heard of, of any of these uh, projects yeah. and how popular they are. I'm not sure. What is your opinion on that? They, they are a real thing. They, they have a certain market segment. The concept is that you would create pornography. It would be done in a loving way. There would be no coercion. Everybody would get paid a fair amount, these sorts of things. Um, we, we think certainly from a production point of view that they are a better concept than seeing somebody who's been trafficked into a situation that is underage. I mean, so that ethically, yes, there is a much better moral approach. But... In terms of the, what the brain can learn and the addiction potential, 
there's no actual difference whether or not the porn was created with an ethical framework or it wasn't, you can still watch it and you can still learn an addictive behaviour. So And I, very quickly you get bored with it and there's not that much ethical porn out there. And so once you get bored with that, the brain demands something more arousing and more shocking. And so then mainstream porn is what you'll go back to or okay. head porn. So again, it's just understanding the escalation aspect. Understanding the addiction process is key to all of this. So, and as I was told by a, a former porn producer, ethical porn is just another branding. It's just a, it's a, a form of porn, it's just, it's just a particular brand. But it certainly has the same, it will have the same impact on the brain in terms of its need for more stimulation. Okay, very, very interesting. And, and yeah, thank you for that. So uh, just before we close, would you like to leave us with some closing remarks and also uh, where people can find you who are listening? Yeah, well, um, the Reward Foundation is rewardfoundation.org. Um, we try to update our material as often as we can. We're about to launch our lesson plans. Um, we're going to be putting our Royal College of General Practitioners course online, hopefully by the end of the year, so that psychologists in other parts of the world who want to learn from all the research we've been looking at and putting out there, they'll be able to learn from that and be able to use it in a practical way. Um, but I, we would just say to your listeners, this is a real problem and it's like a hidden pandemic. And the more you learn about porn's impact on the brain, the better. So, you know, we recommend looking at the videos and the books and the various things we, we, we show on our, on our website to help people get a handle on the situation. Daryl? Yeah, Daryl. Well, I think that we're in a world that has been changed, but still in a very invisible way by pornography. Um, the numbers of people using now in society are very significant. And but because it has a long gestation period for whatever risks that it may have to come out, uh, we don't yet know uh, what they will be uh, at scale and how many people will be affected. But it's more and more. If you look, almost the only level of um, crime that is rising in the UK is sex crime. And that's sex crime for possession of illegal images of children, that's sex crime for sexual assaults and for rape. And for um, and the whole Me Too movement um, is, is pushing back against things like that. But we believe that the potential role and the actual role of internet pornography needs to be examined. The latest paper we published was on future porn research. There has been a European manifesto on problematic use of the internet. And we've had a peer-reviewed paper now published on problematic use of pornography and how that fits into a European future research program. So your readers may also want to see that um, and it's available uh, for free as an open access paper. For future purposes you might be interested in the area of sexual strangulation because we're being told by police that this is uh, there's getting so many more cases of that coming in. It has huge implications for consent you know, in sexual assaults, if somebody says, oh, she asked for rough sex 
and I didn't mean to kill her. You know, is that a defence? So, you know, there are big issues. If you think of that girl, Grace Mullane, the backpacker in New Zealand, who died as a result of strangulation and rough sex. You know, this is, there are more and more cases of that coming through. And these are porn influenced, without doubt. And younger, younger kids are watching this stuff, seeing it and acting it out as well. So there are real problems for society if we don't get a grip on the situation. Okay, well, I wasn't familiar with those cases. And yes, I mean, the issue of consent is, uh, is of course, crucial. Uh, some people may enjoy these things, but of course, if it's young kids, then they may not be too aware. Yeah. They're um, not aware of safety words and such like. Right, right. Okay, well, um, Daryl and Mary, it was a great pleasure to have you on. and. I hope to follow this uh, conversation up. I will be having uh, other researchers on that will be talking about uh, uh, online porn addiction and the effects of, on the brain. And uh, thank you again. And I will leave your uh, website and other uh, contacts on, on the show notes. Great. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share your work. Thank you, Zomi.